Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, March 24th, 2022. I'm John Budhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Yes, I'm going to invite you again to join us on April 6th in Palm Beach, Florida, uh, late afternoon for a live taping of the Commentary Podcast featuring me, Abe, Christine, Noah, and our special guest, Dan Senor, and maybe maybe some others, not clear yet. Um, go to commentary.org slash live podcast. For more details, you can just come. You can come to a meet and greet. You can come to a VIP dinner. These are the three levels of participation. Commentary.org slash live podcast in Palm Beach, Florida, April 6th. And here they are, the live podcasters, podcasting live today to tape. Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, Katanji Brown Jackson survived her third day of testimony, and uh, there seems to be a growing opinion uh, among liberals that um, it's just her treatment has just the egregious the her treatment's been egregious. This is the, the this is the way that this is the way you treat Katanji Brown Jackson. Uh, point of fact, it's been the gentlest hearing for a Supreme Court nominee that we've seen in really since Elena Kagan, I guess, maybe, which was uh, 12, 13 years ago. Pretty gentle, very, very uh, not 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 hard on the not hard on the ears. Um, and uh, if you didn't like the kinds of questions that she was being asked by Republican senators or their demeanor or their me, and that's something you brought to the table before you came because you don't like Lindsey Graham or you don't like Ted Cruz, you don't like their tone or Marshall Blackburn, but there was absolutely nothing out of the ordinary about the kinds of questions that they were asking, and they were perfectly and purely substantive questions as it happens. And she quitted herself fine and was going to be confirmed. And yet there is this screaming hysteria in which the walls, the, excuse me, the Washington post editorial page today, as though it were channeling unconsciously Noah Rothman's (laughs) brilliant blog post of a day or so ago informed us that uh, any Republican claim that uh, they were giving Katanji Brown Jackson, a you know, a rough go was payback for the treatment of Brett Kavanaugh. Said with a straight face that um, their treatment of uh, Katanji Brown Jackson was worse than any treatment of Brett Kavanaugh because Brett Kavanaugh had been, and this is the was the point of Noah's blog post, credibly accused of rape. I'm not going to say this. He was not credibly accused of rape. He was accused of rape, and the and the and the and investigations of the accusation bore fruit in this way. The three people that Christine Blasey Ford named as being her witnesses denied that the incident had happened or had no knowledge of it. And other incidents that were reported on, like supposedly a scene at a Yale party, uh, turned out to be. And I'm going to use my favorite, you know podcasting word now bullshit so he was not he was defamed he was smeared he was libeled by a liar who would gave a really brilliant performance once 
she could simply deliver her monologue of woe without anybody questioning or interfering with the monologue. Liar. Um, so yeah, they treated her a lot worse. So before we get into relitigating, yeah, relitigating the <laughs> Kavanaugh hearings, I want to stipulate that that is precisely what Republicans wanted. That is what they were baiting the left into doing by being very implicit and subtle in their performance of saying, we are not going to call into question the character, background, or motivations of this nominee. We we're strictly going to stick to her record, which they did pointedly, leadingly, perhaps superficially in some ways. And we talked about it yesterday. I thought some of those culture war questions were rather stupid, but they were culture war questions with legal merit, with relevance to her, her record on the bench. Um, that is not what they were talking about in the Kavanaugh hearings. They were going back to his high school days to impugn him as a, as a rapist. And that's exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted to relitigate Kavanaugh. Nothing fired up the Republican base like what happened to Brett Kavanaugh. And all of this was baked in. This reaction to Republicans was baked in before Katanji Brown Jackson was even nominated. Um, I sent this over to our text thread um, that just found its way into my timeline. Today, a cartoonist named David Kennerly, who had uh, put a cartoon together that uh, that the unnamed black woman who was going to be a nominee to the Supreme Court portrayed as Rosa Parks and Republicans sitting behind her all annoyed that an African-American woman had taken this position of power. They had baked into their worldview that Republicans were going to be sexist and racist and didn't matter. No, no, what by the way, said. I should say this is my uh, David Kennerly is a is a is a photographer, uh, photographer. and he in, in, the cartoonist was Mike Lukovich, who said that um, he uh, his friend David Kennerly suggested that he really um, he really should run. He should uh, retweet his cartoon from February. Right. So go less. ahead. Yeah. Nevertheless, the relitigation of the of the Kavanaugh stuff is is important and valuable from a public and political perspective because it demonstrates the extent to which these people are so in their own living in a world of their own making. And this phrase, this mantra credibly accused is, you know, a secret passcode that gets you into the club. It doesn't describe anything relevant to her allegations. It certainly doesn't describe allegations that have any independently verifiable facts. And this bizarre, nonsensical claim that Republicans, this is the Washington Post headline, quote, Republicans boast they have not pulled a Kavanaugh. In fact, they have treated Jackson worse. In no conceivable world did Republicans uh, treat Jackson worse, considering all the hoops they jumped through and the concessions they made to um, uh, Kavanaugh's accuser and her attorney, Deborah Katz, all of which have been forgotten by the people whose job it is to chronicle events. It's maddening. Well, I think that the, the real tell in that post uh, editorial was a phrase in there uh, which said, I'm going to find it because I want to uh, make sure I get it right. Um, they say the colleague, their colleagues' antics, meaning Republicans' antics during the hearings, distracted from their more productive questioning and from what should have been the order of the day. So according to the Washington Post, this is what the order of the day, this is what the Senate should be doing recognizing the historic nomination of the first black woman to sit on the Supreme Court and using the opportunity to probe thorny legal questions in good faith. But they put first the praise. It's like you should just all be grateful that this this identity politics choice 
is before you honor that. And every, you know, any question, I think the implied idea is that any questioning is illegitimate because you're attacking a black woman here. Now, Ketanji Brown Jackson has not presented herself like that. She, you know, she's eager to answer the legal questions. She's doing a good job in her hearings. The the condescension that, that the Washington Post editorial suggests, which is that this, we have to first praise all the identity politics. Let's pat ourselves on the back for choosing a black woman. That's really not what the Senate's role is in a confirmation hearing. It's to make sure that the person that's put before them has the qualifications and the temperament to serve uh, on a on a lifelong position on the court. So this idea that that um, I think they've had to kind of go backwards and rewrite the history of how Democrats treated not just Kavanaugh, but also Amy Coney Barrett. They probed her religious faith. They probed, you know, they, 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 there was a lot of imputation by the media that she was part of some, you know, abusive religious cult. I mean, there were all kinds of crazy stories about her as well. And Republicans haven't forgotten that. Conservatives remember that. We read all those stories. We talked about it. And now they're rewriting it as, oh, it really wasn't that bad. But how they're treating this black woman, this historic black woman. I mean, it's it's both condescending to, to Jackson and her qualifications. And it's ridiculously condescending to the American public who, who remember what happened. It wasn't that long ago. I mean, they, this they were primed for this before the hearing started. There were pieces out about how the Republicans were going to attack, how they were going to deliberately mispronounce her name. So then when they delivered this mild performance, you know, there was no way they couldn't just let this this hunger go, you know. But if you want to talk like racism here. So uh, Jonathan Capehart from The Washington Post re-upped a, a, a piece of his from the, the from 2018 from the Kavanaugh hearings on Twitter. And the piece is. Hell hath no fury like an entitled white man denied. That was the, that was the title. That was the treatment that the press, the liberal press, gave Kavanaugh at the time. I wrote a piece. This was right before the release of um, my first book on social justice. And it was a perfect launching pad to, for a news hook to promote social justice as a, a, a racially conscious and racially bigoted philosophy. Because I have in this piece, it's called The Social Justice Injustice. It's on commentary. It's from 2019. And it includes... I think 15 to 20 very prominent members of the political class and the journalistic class accusing, um, looking at this guy as though he was just a collection of uh, racial traits, um, his socioeconomic background, his racial background, and his gender identity may rendered him guilty. Even his protestations were a manifestation of his, his background. He could be understood only because of his superficial traits, his whole his whole life could be boiled down to his superficial traits. That is bigotry. But it's, it's the not, purest form just, of bigotry, right? And it wasn't just that. It was what was the general line about why we should believe Christine Blasey Ford? It wasn't just that her performance on the day of the hearing was so affecting. It was that every woman in America was a teenage girl who was somehow assaulted. Every woman knows a party they went to where either they or somebody they loved was assaulted. Uh, this it's yeah, triggering. Caitlin Flanagan. It's triggering. Caitlin Flanagan at the wash at the Atlantic had that exact argument. I believe her right. was the title of the piece because yeah. this I believe her, her because when I was 15, uh, you know, yeah. So, um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of this in the, you know, you I'm know sorry I'm interrupting that, you, but the point of that is they had no choice, but to fill in, all the missing details with their own experience. 
because they didn't but, have the evidence to support the accusation. So they superimposed no, themselves into this situation. Right. See, it was interesting, Caitlin Flanagan, because Caitlin Flanagan is, of course, an ideologically heterodox person. And this and, and, and not would not be inclined necessarily to go along with the sort of the mob. And the reason that she did in this case was precisely this weird personal this uh, why this was a clever attack on Kavanaugh that almost destroyed his career and his life um, because precisely because it would be a button pushing thing it is um, it is a version of any time there is a crime that involves a black person in America uh, black people say that could have happened to me and you know there are 40 million black people in the United States. And no, maybe it can happen to you. There are 40 million people in the United States. Um, that is not the way this works. That's not the way it works, but it has become an axiom of faith that any individual event is or individual outrage is a synecdoche for the treatment of a group as a whole. In the case of Kavanaugh, what you're talking about there is white men and white women who make up what 270 million people in the United States, something like that. I mean, I, I, 260 million. I don't know. So uh, this notion that all relation, this then gets to, you know, if you really want to start dialing all this back, this is where is where you start getting to the notion of retailed by radical feminists in the early 1970s and then sort of going mainstream with me too and other stuff that all sexual relations between men and women that involve a man sort of advance, you know, making advances to a woman are grounded in rape or suggest rape or are redolent of rape or redolent of non-consensual sexual aggression. And that idea was once viewed as psychotic. And then it, it, was, it, it was clear with the Kavanaugh hearing that it had become totally mainstream that the presumption was if there's a teenage white boy with a beer in his hand, he's probably a rapist. Oh, mean- and the, it, well, and this but this is this was the, the huge error in judgment of both uh, the activist class who embraced this idea and the mainstream media outlets that, that promoted it throughout the Kavanaugh hearings. They said they were arguing and they said explicitly, you know, every woman should see herself in Christine Blasey Ford and oh, how terrible. Um they should believe women. Remember, like now we can't even define a woman in a Supreme Court hearing. But, you know, then it was believe women. Fine. <laughs> so now what they what they didn't realize at the time was that a lot of women looked at that and didn't just see Christine Blasey Ford. They also saw a man being falsely accused. And that man might look like their husband or their brother or their son. That is that also resonated with a lot of Americans. And it wasn't because of race. It was because of the way that someone was someone who who had a record that could easily be argued about and and legal philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. That entire hearing, anything. The only thing anyone remembers about is Christine Ford. And that was the point. The point was to tarnish his reputation. And we saw it even after he was confirmed. Well, the point was to deny that it was him illegitimate. Court the court numbers. was illegitimate because yeah. he was on the court, right? Right. Yeah. But no, but the point was to try to, to get a to scout. derail. Yes. It, there, yes. it was not the idea that you were he was going to get on the court, but they would kind of tarnish him on the way up. I mean, he was minutes away. You know, if if, if Trump hadn't decided not to jettison him, right, that would have been the end of his life, basically. So um that was a Deborah very Katz. high stakes game. They were hmm? Deborah Katz, who is Christine Blasey Ford's attorney a year after 
the confirmation hearings, was giving a talk to Baltimore's University of Baltimore's Feminist Legal Theory Conference. And she said the following, quote, when he takes a scalpel to Roe v. Wade, we will know who he is. We know his character and we know what motivates him. And this is important. It's important that we know. And that is part of what motivated Christine. So her own attorney is saying that her client was as motivated by the pursuit of justice as her political preferences. Right. Well, it's not your political, it's the body. It's the body of women being. This is the speak your truth problem. I'm telling you, and the media has embraced it. You know, speak your truth, your truth. There's only truth and falsehood. There isn't my truth, but my truth now dominates any of these discussions. Your truth is defamatory. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, I mean, these hearings are awful. I'm sorry. Like people don't. My first couple of weeks in Washington in 1984, I I went and I attended the failed confirmation hearing of a friend of mine, um, uh, uh, older an older friend of mine, um, who had been targeted by the bureaucracy at his agency, and who walked himself into a trap by answering a question a certain way that then he was sandbagged by the committee chairman. I'm not going to mention his name or where he was or whatever it was, but it was a very and the whole point about the whole bring this up, it was the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I'm bringing it up because the dynamic of these hearings is awful. The if there is a way for 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 a committee to nail somebody, uh, they'll do it, and you're sort of watching a human being being led in a maze, you know, you know, into into a into a trap from which they can't escape. And if if the hearing isn't a trap. Um, it's this oleaginous series of praises and grandstanding by the senators and all of that. There's almost nothing revelatory. It is not anything that does the country good. Um, it is good that there's the advice and consent. It's good that somebody has a check on executive power. It is good that these things are done and that the process is, is like that. But the public nature of these hearings and the, the, the way that they are conducted it's one of those reasons that, you know, people say things like democracy is the worst system except for every other system, or our system is the worst system except for every, uh, every other system. It's, it, is, it is the opposite of illuminating. And Supreme Court hearings are often the opposite of illuminating because you do, because you do force people to speak disingenuously about the things they believe and to say that they don't believe the things they believe and that they they never really thought about that or that's not the way they follow that's not the way they think about these things and you listen to them and you know that they're lying you know they're saying what they have to say in order not to answer the question that will lead to another question that will lead to another question it's like taking the fifth they're basically taking the fifth in these hearings because all they have to do is get through it to get confirmed and then they're done for the rest of their life (laughs) they're the supreme court justice for the rest of their life it's awful the dynamic is terrible and nobody looks good. Generally speaking, the witnesses don't look good unless they can get off a good line or a good joke here and there. Like Elena Kagan made a joke about going to Chinese restaurants on Christmas Eve that that made her very endearing. And I thought, I actually thought Amy Coney Barrett came off as being quite endearing. Um, and I think Katanji Brown Jackson came off as being quite endearing at moments. So what? Like who who cares if they're endearing or not? You know. It's of it's of no consequence whether they're endearing or what they're like in that in that respect. But 
but it's a you know it's a performance and it's bad and this is a this is a gross element of life and i will say one last thing which is democrats and liberals have one just claim to stake against republicans in the courts over the last 15 years or or at least something that we can argue about forever which was the denial of a hearing to Merrick Garland or the or the decision to say that, you know, 400, 480 days before an election or whatever it was, this was too soon to have a hearing uh, on the Supreme Court that really should be a decision left to, you know, the voters uh, in the subsequent election. I mean, that was pretty scuzzy. It was the ultimate in power politics. I'm perfectly satisfied with the outcome that it wasn't Merrick, particularly the way Merrick Garland is conducting himself as attorney general. And uh, and the way that and the fact that Neil Gorsuch is a is a is has written these very brilliant like he will be known in Supreme Court history for being one of the best writers on the court. But, you know, if they want to talk about that all the time, that that I think is legitimate and just it is legitimate and just nah. to say, you know, OK, I, that's my I'm I'm throwing nah. them a bone. Senate prerogatives that can do whatever they want to do. And when that pledge well, was made in March of 2016, I mean, it looked like Mitch McConnell had set himself up for a trap because when he made the pledge, nobody thought Donald Trump was going to get the nomination. And then Donald Trump got the nomination and it looked like Mitch McConnell had set himself up not only to not get Merrick Garland, but to get a far more liberal justice in the Clinton administration for a long time. Just a bank shot. Okay. well, anyway, I think it was pretty scuzzy. And uh, and. uh, you know, it's like one of those things where people say, well, you know, they would have done it to us. And, look, you know, none of this would have happened if Harry Reid hadn't started, you know, screwing around with the with the way judicial nominations are handled. And I agree with that. And I, I, I think that uh, the way the court has become this, you know, political, this, this political game, uh, because it has too much power and it's arrogated too much power. And uh, and and is uh, nightmarishly uh, central to American life because our our legislators don't do their jobs properly is a real sadness. But I think basically it's amazing that anybody gets through these things without looking like crap. And so Katanji Brown Jackson doesn't really look like crap, I, even if you don't like her answers. And even if you're really disturbed by the I can't define what it is to be a woman. I'm not a biologist. Um line which i am you know i mean she she showed the temperament oh you remember the whole thing about how brett kavanaugh yeah i was just gonna jump in to say yeah Yeah. i was just gonna jump in to say we actually don't know if what what her personal character is like we know her resume and we know her philosophy and i agree john there are some things she signaled that that are worrisome to me as a conservative but we don't know how she would handle a personal attack because none were made against her. No personal attacks. I mean, Cory Booker spent all of his time basically doing this, you know, ridiculous, you know, one act play where he, you know, brought her to tears and going on and on. Fine. It's all grandstanding. They're all making their campaign ads for the upcoming midterm elections. No problem. But we don't know how she would have reacted. And the reason that it's constantly brought up that Kavanaugh got angry is that he was accused of gang rape. This is a man who like coached his daughter's basketball team and would have to look into the eyes of other parents on the team now and having been accused in public of of raping someone. Um, That is, uh, of course, he was angry. And there was this whole discussion of, oh, was his anger fake? Was it contrived? Was he... Who cares? Anyone falsely accused of something so serious and egregious whose reputation was smeared 
has a right to get upset about it. She, we don't know how she would have reacted because the Republicans didn't do that to the Democrats nominee. When By the way, remember, Blasey Ford. remember, remember who came out of uh, the Kavanaugh hearings as a great liberal heroine? Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. Congratulations, oh, Democrats. Right. Her brilliant Selena Meyer is your vice president. Yeah. Her epic takedown. Yeah, it was a, it was yeah. a secret meeting at Arma. Donald Trump's law firm that no, nothing ever came of that accusation. It was just floated and, and left to you know, just hang there. Um, she does that a lot. She just has non sequiturs that well, I think are great. It's about like, the passage you know, of time, for the Noah. It's really yeah. about um, the passage of time. When Christine Blasey Ford testified, it was a seismic moment. Uh, we were in the office at the time. I remember yeah. where I was. And I remember, John, you and I talking, being like, if he doesn't come out of that room swinging, he's done for. And he looked like he thought he was done for. That's the other part that people don't remember when he was so upset and he was crying. He said, my life has been destroyed. He said, my life is destroyed. So is he supposed to do that in a light, happy manner? Also, remember, it wasn't just the, the accusations of, of uh, assault. It was they were looking at his financial history. They were making public information about loans he'd taken out. I mean, they were digging and digging and, and digging. His drinking habits. All of that was considered fair game. Do we know if, if Katanji Brown-Jackson has any outstanding mortgages? We need to know. I mean, this is not the, the, these two things, apples and oranges in terms of how they've been treated. Also, don't forget the look on Kavanaugh's wife's face when he had to go in there and, and respond to those allegations. That's what I really remember. The look on her face. <sighs> okay. Let me talk to you about our friends at BattleBox. How are you going to find your favorite new piece of outdoor gear? If you sign up for a BattleBox, it finds you. BattleBox, your go-to monthly subscription for hand-picked outdoor survival and everyday carry gear. Getting the best gear for yourself not only takes time, but it can be incredibly expensive. That's why BattleBox brings you name brand, high quality products every month at half the price of what they'd cost on their own. You just pick the box that works for you and get tested and vetted products you can trust that are selected by an expert team of outdoor professionals. From an Aquapod emergency water kit to an Atomic Bear survival bivy delivered right to your doorsteps each month. BattleBox has shipped over 1 million boxes since 2015, has been featured everywhere from the New York Times to Survivor's Edge. Find out why outdoor enthusiasts call BattleBox the best gear I never knew I wanted. Now, until March 31st, get a free mystery box worth $115 plus with any new subscription at trybattlebox.com slash commentary. That's T-R-Y-B-A-T-T-L-B-O-X.com slash commentary for a free mystery box worth $115 right now, battlebox.com slash commentary. And happy to welcome back to the podcast our friends at Fast Growing Trees as spring arrives. Spring and summer, you know, the seasons for finally getting outdoors, for entertaining, pool parties, barbecues. But if your yard looks like a plant cemetery, you're not going to enjoy it as much. So get your place looking like a resort easy with fast-growing trees. When it comes to caring for your plants, know-how matters. That's why fastgrowingtrees.com's experts curate thousands of plant varieties that will thrive in your specific climate, location, and needs. No waiting in lines, no messy cars from hauling plants all over town. You order online or over the phone and your plants are shipped to your door in one to two days. Plus, they're growing in care advice available 24-7. Whether you're looking for increased privacy, shade, or adding some natural beauty to your yard, fast-growing trees have the perfect plants and the expertise to help you find them. And even if you've never had a green thumb, 
They'll make you feel like you do. One million home gardeners have already seen what fastgrowingtrees.com can do for them. Plus, with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, you can trust everything will be healthy for years to come. So go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary right now, and you'll get 15% off your entire order. Get 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. Fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. So Joe Biden is in Europe rallying NATO, but what is he rallying NATO for? More sanctions. Apparently there's talk of more sanctions. More uh, unity. Talk of more unity. We're in this position now in this war where what matters for the Ukrainians is that they can continue to fight it. Uh, And hearing less about it, he's going to give a press conference later today in which maybe he'll enumerate some of the things that he expects to come out of this. Um, and maybe they understand, maybe, maybe they don't have a logistic supply chain yet. Maybe they don't know what it is that they need to provide and all of that. But that is the thing I think to listen for is what specifically are we doing to help the Ukrainians continue to either hold off the Russians or potentially we have this, uh, situation that, um, People are talking about that there is um, a significant number of Russian troops that are in a, they, they might be, the Ukrainians might be in a position to surround them and cut them off and create a mass surrender incident in which they can actually claim to have won a reasonably conventional battle. Um, are we going to be in a position to help them do that? The kind of thing that, can really turn the tide in a war. I mean, you know, where they actually have 10,000 Russians that they have taken prisoner. That really remains an outside shot. It's, it's possible. And depends on how effective these counteroffensives are. We just, we don't really know what the situation is in the suburbs of Kiev. Um, A lot of information suggests these counteroffensives are going well. There was this piece in the Washington post suggesting one of these towns that had been liberated, hadn't been liberated. We just don't know, but there are counteroffensives going on. I would just add briefly that this NATO uh, summit is actually really valuable, even if nothing comes of weapons shipments. I think they will, um, because they, they uh, reportedly in the New York Times this morning, they're establishing and retailing what a unified NATO response would look like to the use of an unconventional weapon. They need to cr- establish that now and broadcast it far and wide to maintain deterrence. So last week we were talking about... <clears throat> Uh, the term decimation and how it means uh, the loss of one tenth of uh, one's troops. So I was reading the Wall Street Journal today. The, the estimate from NATO is that the and we were saying that last week that the Russians uh, had essentially been decimated because uh, killed or injured or, or 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 those who had walked off had had constituted uh, one tenth of the Russian forces. Uh, The estimate that I read today coming out of NATO is that one-fifth of Russian troops are now out of commission. Um, That's astounding. You know, it's interesting because the funny thing about the Russians, I don't really know how this works exactly, but, you know, the abandonment of positions, you know, it's not like they're, they, you know, they've been flown off to Iraq or Afghanistan or Vietnam, right? They're you know, a couple hundred miles from the Russian border. I mean, I mean, they can't walk, I don't know, or something like that, but it's like they're not exactly, you know, it's not exactly they're in a faraway place that they can't get home from. 
I mean, the fantasy of being on a battlefield where you're where you're sort of you're you're overwhelmed or you're you're over or something like that. If they run, you know, they can communicate with the they can communicate with the, you know, with with the natives, uh, and they can somehow maybe get themselves back home. Uh, remember, these are you know, I don't know how old these these soldiers are. Uh, if they're conscripts, they could be 18, 19 years old. Their flight could be emotional and you know irrational or something like that. But but it's not like there's nowhere to go if you go AWOL in the jungle in Vietnam. There's nowhere to go. They got plenty of places to go. I mean, I know they're in they're in unfriendly territory, but um that's sort of an interesting as side aspect of this. It's like, you know, if we attack Canada, you know, or something like that, and Canada really held us up. You might have people going, well, I'm dropping my gun, take, you know, I'm going to take off my uniform and I'm going to try to, you know, I'm going to try to blend in or, or I'll walk, I'll walk, uh, I'll walk across the border, go through the hills and I'll walk across the border in, you know, North Dakota or, you know, or, you know, Wisconsin. I mean, well, I, I do think, and Noah flagged this on our, on our, text chain, I think last night or early this morning, um, there are the reason that the NATO meeting, you're right, uh, should be getting ahead of this issue of unconventional weapons in particular, is that we've we've lost the communication that that we usually have between our military planners and Russia's military planners. They're literally not answering their phone. I think it was the Post that did a story about this. That's very worrisome because those are the cooler heads prevail conversations that, that need to happen. The check-ins just so sort of People know where we are. Uh, these were pretty common during the Cold War when a situation would flare up, those conversations would happen, they would pick up the phone. So the fact that they're not answering those calls is very worrisome um, for a number of reasons. But that's another thing that I th- think Biden's going to have to hopefully yeah, address. That post, the post piece is <clears throat> the deconfliction hotline is working. They test it every day, both sides pick right. up. The deconfliction hotline is designed to de escalate tactically and the battlefield level. Um, so that, you know, we have this asset moving here, you have this asset moving here, make sure that you don't hit each other. Uh, on the strategic level, uh, that phone is dead. So this is what we want. This is what you want. That kind of conversation. Uh, that's not happening anymore. And this post piece speculates and it, can, it comports with rumors around, you know, people who study open source intelligence that a lot of the military and military intelligence establishment in the Kremlin has been sidelined. Like they don't see Shoigu, they don't see Gerasimov anymore. They're just, they're not around. Uh, they, they might be in hospital, they might not be in hospital. They just, they disappeared for a month. And that that's troubling because that suggests that it's a one-man shop over there. And all, you know, the launch codes are all with one guy and there's no checks on that one guy uh, who appears rather deluded about the tactical situation to say nothing of the strategic situation. And that's very, very worrisome. And we've seen some, we're not seeing nuclear movements yet from them, uh, from the Russian side, which would lead us to, for example, in, uh, raise the DEFCON level. But we're seeing NATO forces do some weird stuff. Like France, for example, just put three of its four uh, boomers, its nuclear capable submarines with intercontinental ballistic missiles in the water. Haven't done that since the 80s. Um, some weird things and just troubling things are are happening abroad. You know, the, uh, the fog of war stuff and the n- n- numerical stuff is very confusing, I have to say. Um, 
because, uh, you know, as, as these stories come out, we, you know, with no idea how many are dead on the Ukrainian side, how many are dead on the Russian side. These are all estimates. The U- UN now estimates that a quarter, something like, or half of all Ukrainian children are now, you know, are now fleeing. That seems, you know, when you start throwing numbers like that around, half of all children? I mean, I know that, you know, we don't even know how the, these numbers are all are all fishy. And then there's all sorts of other fishy things like we're not fishy, but um, but um, indeterminate. So uh, the Washington Post has a has a good, interesting, sobering story about this, um, you know, suburb town that was retaken by the, uh, you know, by, by the Ukrainians, um, the name of which I, I can't uh, hold on. It's right here. Um, uh, Makariv. And, you know, they Ukrainians took it back, but 20% of it or something is still controlled by the Russians and everybody left. And it's not quite clear what it means if they're still firing that they want it back. Generally speaking, when you win something back, it means that that the invader or whoever it is has retreated and that you planted your flag and you then have control of it, not that the battle is still ongoing for it. And uh, and the mayor suggests in this Washington Post story that the defense minister got sort of over out over his skis saying that, you know, that they had won back Makariv. So. I'm not sure we know what to believe. I mean, all we know in the large picture is that the Ukrainians have done vastly better than anybody expected. And the Russians have done way worse than anybody anticipated. And that the circumstances in the war are, are far more favorably disposed toward the, toward the Ukrainians on this present date than anybody would ever have expected. But that doesn't really tell you much about the future. And there is always a threat of irrational exuberance, you know, in the course of this stuff that particularly given how brilliantly the Ukrainians have been handling the information war. Um, you know, I don't know how much it's interesting because at some point it may be that if if people start believing that they were sold a bill of goods about how well the Ukrainians were doing, I'm not saying they're going to turn on the Ukrainians because they're still the good guys and the Russians are still the bad guys. But, um, you know, I don't know. They 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 should probably be careful about getting too <laughs> enthusiastic about how well they're doing. If what they really need is American and NATO engagement to make it possible for them to continue the fight. I, I have one other bit of global bad news to add to it, the pile, uh, the increasing pile, and that's that yesterday we found out that call me shocked, surprised. I have my big surprise face on. The Taliban is refusing to allow girls in Afghanistan above sixth grade to return to school. A lot of them showed up, high schoolers in particular, to go back to school, which they were told they'd be allowed to do, and then they were turned away. So in terms of like the long tail of Biden's Afghanistan policy, here is another data point, one we shouldn't forget. Those are the the girls most in need of, of continuing their education because they're in a very vulnerable age where they might be married off. Um, and we know for a fact that a lot of families are basically selling their daughters in order to uh, get money for food and, and other necessities. These girls need the opportunity to have an education and that's going to be denied to them by the Taliban. The Taliban's making noises like, oh, we just have to make make sure it, it, it adheres to all the Muslim rules that we wanted to have. This is bullshit. Uh, our favorite new phrase. 
Um, we're going to get an NC 17 rating on, on Apple podcasts if we keep it up, but this, this is very, this just, it breaks my heart. Honestly, this is, these are girls who an entire generation of young women grew up assuming they could go to school. And now that is being taken from them after months of, you know, they, they've been out of school for a long time. So it's just heartbreaking. And we have zero influence over there now too. There's we exactly. have no leverage. We have no enough. And this is after <clears throat> when, when Biden was called out on this stuff during the withdrawal, you know, he made this pronouncement about how he's still going to, you know, be monitoring and championing uh, women's rights and girls' rights over in Afghanistan. But that was it was a it was dead as dust the second we left. I'm sure a very firmly worded statement will be issued, and that will do so much good for them. It has been. Yes, yes Tony well. Blinken did issue a statement. Wow. So that's Thanks, really Tony. I know. <laughs> Yeah, he issued a statement because that's that's what we're good at is um, is 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 issuing statements. Um, about going back to August of last year and looking for all the statements from Blinken and Biden, Jen Psaki about how they would do everything they possibly could to make sure that women's rights were protected and preserved in Afghanistan. Well, they got they got time. They can hopefully give not before now. I write that blog post. Okay, now for those of us who care, uh, Abe and I in particular at this moment, but um, I'm going to end on good news. And the uh, the good news is that um, Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, after a really, really violent weekend, um, basically announced that he is going back to the policing policies of the 1990s. Um, they are uh, read. They are they are following. They're going to follow broken windows and Comstat policing um, uh, by uh, redeploying uh, police forces in force where there are outbreaks of crime, um, uh, putting extra cops on parole, meaning taking them out of out of desk jobs and put them out on the street to engage with quality of life infractions and criminals. Um, so the neighborhood coordination officers that de Blasio had assigned basically to desk jobs are going to stop helping solve cases to go to quality of life enforcement, which is the big deal. This is the big return um, to the to the to the the good past. De Blasio was referring to the bad past where you deal with crime by dealing with the crimes after they've been committed, as opposed to having a philosophy that says that you interdict crime before it happens. They're basically going back to stop and frisk, though they're 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 referring to it as an anti-gun effect, um, and uh, and uh, so um, I don't know what it, it's interesting is he's been mayor now for two months um, or three months, and um, it's not that the city feels less safe, but um, clearly measures to reverse and make things better have been somewhat ineffectual. And so the question now is whether he is getting his hands on this and, you know, really is going to take hold of the fact that uh, until, until he can make New Yorkers feel like they're not going to get pushed on a subway in, in the front of a subway train by a crazy homeless person or, you know, or hit 125 times with a punched 125 times on the street by somebody because they're Asian or something like that, that um, things will, uh, you know, he's, he, he, he's, he's on a knife's edge uh, as a, as a new mayor without a lot of, uh, without much of a, a constituency or, or a support group. And the only way he's going to get a support group 
is by getting the citizens on his side, not by getting the interest groups on his side. And it's going to so take it, a while. Yeah, it's going to take a while um, for for the the return of these policies to have an appreciable effect because the city has never before um, sort of crime has been worse, but the pandemic's toll in the city sort of eroded. Um, the sense of um, there's there's a sense of permissiveness that that kicked in uh, when everything was a sort of no man's land, uh, and it's it's a lot of, of what's going on. I think is still a, the residual effect of that. That's true, and there is all that stuff with um, look. A, 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 just to you know, again, personalize this. So uh, our office is on a corner above a subway station. Um, it's two blocks from uh, a major police precinct. And on each corner, there is a guy at a card table selling joints. Not a guy. There's no. multiple guys. Multiple, on multiple guys. Tables. Four, four corners, multiple tables. Guys selling joints, rolled loose joints and edibles and things like that at these card tables. This is not legal. I mean, even in the world of decriminalized marijuana, you are not allowed. You're not allowed to sell loose cigarettes, by the way, either. And because the DA, the new DA of Manhattan announced that he wasn't going to prosecute misdemeanor offenses, uh, you know, uh, the criminal class or the not so, you know, whatever has taken, you know, it's, it's like they they got their consultants to sit down, write a report on what they could and couldn't do, how they could handle things. And they basically decided to set up shop everywhere because they've been told that they're not going to get prosecuted for for misdemeanor or even minor felonies. Um, And that policy is going to have to be withdrawn by Alvin Bragg at some point if this is going, you know, the the announced policy. I'm confused because in last year, March 31st, 2021, Cuomo signed legislation legalizing possession of up to three ounces and distribution at a smaller level but they haven't approved this is this is the legal limbo that i'm in in new jersey because we had a a referendum a national statewide referendum legalizing pot in 2020 and the state has been unable to create a legal regime around its sale in the state not because it's not legal it is it's now legal you can sell it but you can't sell it in certain municipalities and definitely not statewide because they haven't figured out how the interest groups are going to get paid off. Literally, I was, I've read this like a year ago that it, the, the equity and diversity groups all needed their cut of the tax revenue from the sale and they couldn't figure it out. And so two years later, we still have this weird regime where you can have it and you can sell it, but you can't sell it in a storefront. You can't have a brick and mortar store for it. So it sounds like that's the same situation in no, New York. No, 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 they're, 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 they're starting dispensaries and this and that and the other thing. You can't, these tables, no one's paying taxes. Okay. Well, you need a license to sell things on in public space in most cities. That, so in DC, we have the problem with these pop-up. We have these like little pop-ups that take over an abandoned, you know, place and they, they sell marijuana and they always, it, it, 
oftentimes it's not the person actually setting up the table and selling or setting up the pop-up and selling. It's all the people who come to buy, who start fighting with each other and shooting each other. We had one of these uh, two years ago, they raided one in my neighborhood because it kept drawing a crowd of people who solved their disputes with guns and shooting. So it, it it's not just that someone's like illegally trying to make a buck and, oh, isn't it so unfair that, you know, the law enforcement's coming down so hard on them now. It's That is the definition of the quality of life situation. You create an environment in which high risk individuals with weapons all turn up and, you know, get high and then get angry. And the result is people get robbed, people get shot, people get carjacked. We have a whole section of the Capitol Hill now in D.C. that's now known by law enforcement as Carjack Alley because it happens so frequently there. Right. But I mean, the point the point here is no cop is going to waste his time making a bust on a on a on a on a street table where they're selling pot. It's a six hour he makes a bust. He brings the guy in for, you know, doing something without a license, whatever. He's got to bring him in. He's got to write him up. He's got to do this. He's got to do that. And there won't be any prosecution. He will have wasted hours and hours of his life doing nothing. So why should he? Why should he do that? He'll only do that if there is a decision made at the, you know, at the precinct level that they're going to clean this out and it's, it'll come at some point, but there needs to be a change in the way this ideologically driven notion that there's just too many people being sent to jail. Uh, What, what, what the unintended consequences of that are, which is, public lawlessness and an expression of the, you know, it's sort of a visible manifestation of the decline of civil society right, right in front of your eyes. So, but it's, but it is very promising. It is a promising and hopeful sign since we've just been talking about all sorts of terrible signs. This is actually a hopeful sign. So I'm expressing some hope. I know that's not really our brand, but are you um, still allowed to skip subway fares? That's, that's a, that's another lovely well, that's if, if it's broken windows, then no. I mean, broken right. window. The the original the original broken windows crime is turnstile jumping. Right. The idea that if you a person who dr- jumps a turnstile is likely is likely guilty of worse crimes, and therefore it's a it's a it's a righteous bust because it's a way of getting people who are who are out on war, for whom there are warrants for worse crimes. And they're wandering the streets, and this is the second or the third crime. They or were. they're carrying an illegal gun on the right. street, and they yeah. exactly, yeah. All right, so we will be back to you tomorrow. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, go to commentary.org/slash/live podcast for details on that April sixth podcast in Palm Beach, Florida. And for Abe, Christine, and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.